daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, Yemen's Houthi rebels have renewed their warning against U.S. forces in the Red Sea. How will the Red Sea crisis escalate and what does it mean for global supply chains? China has issued draft rules for the management of online games. What implications could this have for the gaming industry? And we bring you our year-end review series. In today's episode, we discuss the ups and downs of China-U.S. relations over the past year. Yemen's Houthi rebels have renewed their warning to the U.S. forces, urging them to leave the Red Sea. The warning came as the U.S. accused the Houthis of attacking an Indian-flagged crude oil tanker owned by Gabon. A Houthi spokesman denied the claim, saying it was a U.S. naval destroyer that was behind this near-miss attack in the southern end of the Red Sea. Houthi rebels have escalated attacks on the Israel-linked commercial ships passing through the Red Sea and Arab Sea, demanding an end to Israel's aggression on the Gaza Strip and the delivery of food and medicine supplies to the enclave. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, so how do you look at the recent warning from Houthi rebels about the Red Sea becoming a burning area if U.S. forces do not leave quickly? I think it is, uh, uh, it is a very major milestone uh, between the United States and uh, Houthi, uh, their tension escalation, because, uh, uh, because actually the Houthi, uh, they uh, declared a very, very uh, a warning against the United States and uh, warn United States withdraw from uh, Red Sea, and also from the perspective of the United States that uh, Houthi uh, attacks, and especially their uh, threats uh, against uh, the ships uh, in, the, in the Red Sea, which has the very close ties with, with Israeli uh, seaports, might be coming a very burning point uh, for the whole region. So actually, from the uh, from United States part, that uh, Houthi, Yemen Houthi should be responsible for the recent tension. While from the uh, Houthi's uh, perspective, the United States is actually provoking more conflict and more uncertainties in this region. So that is why uh, uh, recent uh, in the recent days, on the one hand, the United States now is uh, readying the, the the ships, uh, especially the warships from not only it's from not only itself, but also from other Western countries and also another Arab state, Bahrain, uh, to, to, to ready a very strong military presence in the Red Sea to deter the Houthi. Well, also from the, from the Houthi side, they, 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 they threaten to, uh, to launch more attacks against the targets uh, who has close t- connections with Israel uh, in the Red Sea. So that is why we say that uh, the warning right now from the Houthi uh, towards the United States is a very, very major turning point of the escalation of tension in the Red Sea. That suggests there will be more uh, possibilities and conflicts and uh, tensions in the future. Well, what do you make of the role of uh, this uh, U.S.-led multinational naval force? Um, do you think it has effectively deterred the Houthi rebels and secured um, to help secure the Red Sea shipping lane, or is it actually opening a new front and contributing to the militarization of the Red Sea? I think United States uh, they are led a multinational naval force 
uh, from the United States or Washington's perspective is the kind of the measure to protect the the, the shifts uh, in the Red Sea. Because uh, on the one hand, the United States hopes to uh, deter the possible uh, actions of taking of taking the, the ships as hostages uh, from the Houthi uh, military uh, personnel in the Red Sea. Especially, we know that in the in the uh, in the uh, in, in the November, uh, one of the ships named with Galaxy Leader, maybe I, I forget the exact name. The, the the ships of the galaxy leader who has a very close ties with with Israel uh, was taken as a hostage and uh, and taken back to the port of the Houthi controlled areas uh, in October. So that is a very that is why United States they they hope to deter such things uh, from happening again. And also on the other hand, United States and their military uh, I mean naval forces in the Red Sea they hope to intercept the missiles and the rockets and also the drones from the Houthi controlled areas uh, towards the ships in the Red Sea and also towards the, the Israeli uh, targets inside Israeli territories. So that is why they they hope to to be deployed a large uh, naval forces in the Red Sea. But, uh, but again, this is, I think, United States also understand that the very deeply rooted or the very beginning courses of this escalation between uh, Houthis and the United States can be attributed to the conflict that is still ongoing between Israelis and Palestinians and the Gaza Strip. So if the United States can really ready such military forces to prevent the escalation of tension and to restore the original order, why not United States go to, go to Gaza directly to help the local people there? So that is why I think United States play a very complicating role here. On the one hand, from their perspective, they are doing the right thing, but maybe I think they can do more. They can do much more positive, do, do the things from the very uh, much more positive ways rather than a very negative way. Yeah, and why have major Arab states opted not to participate in this naval coalition? I think, uh, yes, as you mentioned, only one uh, Arab state, Bahrain, uh, they joined the, the, this, this naval coalition. But given that the Bahrain uh, is a very strong, uh, it's a very small country with very, very uh, limited uh, naval forces and, and also its forces, its, its <coughs> even in Arab world, are not so strong. So that is why this role is not so is so apparent, and um, most of of the Arab states, especially the the, the, the neighboring uh, Red Sea neighboring Arab states, such as Egypt, such as Jordan, such as uh, Saudi Arabia, they chose not to participate uh, into the naval coalition. I think, on the one hand, they are in a very dilemma standards, uh, status because they know exactly that uh, the deeply rooted causes of this. Uh, uh, who see the actions against uh, the ships in the Yemen, uh, in the Red Sea, are uh, resulted from the co- ongoing conflict in the uh, in the in the, in the Gaza Strip. So that is why they hope to still uh, to keep a distance from the, uh, from the, the United States course uh, of forming this kind of the naval coalition. But on the other hand, they also worried about the possible escalation of tension, and if they really join this uh, coalition, that also might uh, break the ongoing uh, and warming uh, ties between between themselves with Iran and also especially between the ongoing uh, peaceful negotiation between Saudi Arabia and Yemen Houthi, uh, mediated by Oman. 
So that is why uh, I think they choose not to participate, but they still closely monitor the situation and they still closely uh, supervise what is happening in the Red Sea and hope that this kind of tension in this region would not be escalated. Okay, and, and notably, France, Italy, and Spain; these three countries joined the coalition at first, but、uh, they decided to withdraw from this、um, less than a week later. So. What do you think could have led to this decision? I think the, these three uh, countries—they、uh, know how the complexities of the situation is—and also on the other hand,、uh, they understand that Houthi、uh, Houthi Houthi groups in the Yemen—they they are not the groups who、uh, launch attacks against anyone in this、uh, in this Red Sea, but they just attack the targets who have with a very close connections with Israel. So、uh, during the past days, we have already witnessed that, that yes, Houthi launched some some kind of attacks, but not、um, but not against the ships, all of the ships, but just、uh, the very very limited targets with the very close connections with Israel. So that is why、uh, this I think these these three countries, France, Italy, Spain, they choose not to、uh, join these naval forces. Uh, in, led by the United States, and also、uh, that during the past days, although some of the very major shipping companies they choose not to go through the Red Sea anymore, but to to go to, to go to the、uh, go to the, the, the new、uh, passing channel from the South Africa. But then, if we look at what is happening in Russia, the, the Russian shipping companies they are still passing the Red Sea without the fear of being targeted, without the worries of being uh, being uh, attacked. So that is why we see that、uh, if the time goes by, we will understand that the Houthis they they choose their target not based on the very careful. Uh, uh, understandings of the situation, but、uh, they have their own very strict、uh, measures of choose who should be targeted, who should be uh, uh, who should be attacked. They have their own principles.、Mm-hmm. Well, to what extent do you anticipate the U.S. becoming further involved in the conflict in the region, and how might such increased engagement impact the dynamics of the conflict? I think the United States and also it's led the、uh, the multinational、um, naval forces. They would、uh, still be kept as the, the forces to intercept as we rest on on the one hand to to prevent the the, the ships with the close connections with Israel、uh, from being、uh, taken as hostages by the Houthi military personnel, and also on the other hand they. Try to intercept the drones and the missiles and the rockets launched from the Yemen Houthi-controlled areas against the targets, not only the Red Sea but also the targets inside the Israeli territory. So they would they hope to play this kind of role. But meanwhile, the United States might launch some kind of attacks if their own warships. And their own military presence in the Red Sea and the other parts of the Middle East、uh, would be targeted directly by the Houthi、uh, missiles. So I think they might launch some kind of attacks against the targets inside Houthi-controlled areas. That might be the beginning point of the escalation of tensions between the United States and Houthi, and also would add new uncertainties and new、uh, possibilities. For the regionals, whole、uh, situation from the very relative stable status into the、uh, worse 
much worse and a much instable uh, situation. So that is why we say we need to uh, the international society to to, to watch it uh, and monitor it closely, especially the the, the latest uh, uh, the the actions taken by the United States and also its uh, regional allies and also its Western allies. Mm-hmm. And very briefly, how will global trade be affected by the Red Sea crisis, and will it lead to another supply chain crisis? I, I think this will affect it. Yes, this will affect the global trade because actually this is a it is a major threat a threat to the global major uh, shipping channel, and also it's also the threat and the very uh, important channel in the Swiss Canal, and also the connect the connections between Asia and Europe. So that is why it's the bad news. Uh, for the uh, global trade, especially the trade between Europe and Asia. But on the other hand, I don't think this kind of uh, uncertainties in the Red Sea would be uh, suddenly and would be greatly expanded into into the very uh, total war or total confrontation in this region. It is still uh, being controlled and being being managed by not only the international society but also by the regional countries. So, but that is but again, we have to closely monitor it and we have to closely mm-hmm. watch how the situation will go and we should intervene and uh, the and bring the, the piece of uh, the peace possibilities back to the region. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China is bringing in new rules that will limit the money and time people can spend on video games. The proposed rules prohibit online games from offering rewards that lure people to excessively play and spend, including those for daily logins and topping up accounts with additional funds. The rules also require games to set pop-ups, which would warn users of irrational playing behavior. Game publishers would need to house their servers in China to process and store user data rather than elsewhere. The government is also looking to speed up the process of giving a green light to a new game, requiring regulators to complete approvals within 60 days. The National Press and Publication Administration will solicit public opinions on the proposed rules over the next month or so. For more, my colleague Ding Hun spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Thank you very much for joining us today.、Um, talking about China's regulations of the online gaming industry, we usually think of the year 2021 when Chinese authorities released rules saying that online gamers. Under the age of 18, would only be allowed to play for an hour on Fridays, weekends, and public holidays.、Uh, with that in mind, what about the proposed rules this time around? What do you think has really prompted the Chinese government to further roll out new rules? Yeah, we know that the online gaming is a really a prosperous industry. Like many of the websites are turning from just providing some content into the game providers. I think that many people in China really want to be engaged in this kind of environment,、uh, and I I think that for this time, the government is really trying to provide a better support on the regulation of the industry and trying to make them. Especially the providers be more self-regulated on the 
time to provide for the amusement or entertainment for the users and not to put so many things unnecessary for the uh, for the enjoyment of these uh, games. Actually, it's a, a, a addiction prevention uh, measures, I would say that. So, uh, like many of the regulations are uh, are provided to the game providers, not to make some of additional attractive ways for the people to use a lot of money to be stored in the games and provide a better mechanism, not only for the consumers, but also, I think, for the competition in these industries, because the smaller companies cannot do that. So it's, it's a trying to provide a better and more transparent rules for the, uh, for the players in this sector. Mm. So, so do you agree that uh, in addition to uh, providing per protection for the juveniles and teenagers, um, adults should also be somehow protected from those, you know, excessive in-game purchase designs or the type of monetization model on the part of gaming platforms. It, it seems that uh, this is exactly what this uh, particular proposed uh, rules are trying to do as well. Yeah, actually, if you are looking at these regulations or you know the document, you can find that there is a separate chapter for the juvenile, but also a lot more things are not for specific group of persons. So, in my understanding, that uh, normally I would say that adults are more able to control their habits, their moods, their feeling, or their actions. They should be responsible for them, their own actions. But actually, when they are, uh, you know, under certain certain circumstances, it it becomes very hard. So we know that uh, even the adults are really need some kind of restriction. Maybe not from themselves, but we we should remind them. I have to say, but in the other hand, I, I think that is more effective if we are providing or require the companies to do that instead of just, uh, you know, to make them that people are fully engaged in the games. Actually, it's, an, it's an, a real important thing for the adults. They have more responsibility, not only for study. They have to work. They have to communicate with others. They have to, you know, undertake a lot of jobs. If all of them or part of them are really engaged in the game, sometimes it's very difficult for them to undertake what they should do, like for the bus drivers, if they are engaged in the in the games, maybe they lost the control of the, the wheels. It's very dangerous. So I think that it's a, a proper way that we have sent some kind of barriers, some kind of rules to regulate the behavior of the companies. Hmm. So China, talking about the commercial aspect of this matter, China is of course home to China is of course home to the world's biggest online gaming industry. Which, according to the estimates by the Goldman Sachs, has about 650 million users and an annual revenue of 45 million U.S. dollars.、Uh, of course, in this market, there are giant players like NetEase and Tencent, these household names. But there are also some small or medium-sized developers as well. Some foreign companies, like、uh, companies from South Korea. They also have a stake in this market as well. So, what do you think the、uh, this proposed new rules would mean to these different players? 
Yeah, it's a really important thing that we are creating our fair competition playground for all the related stakeholders. Like some of the the bigger companies, they have uh, many resources. They have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the fame or the brand. They have been known by so many users or consumers. But for some smaller ones, they do not have uh, very a lot of money, but they have some good ideas. They have some good stories. They they can share that stories with the consumers. I think that we should try to pick a, a very good strategies to let all the related stakeholders to find some specific market for themselves. And that is also very good for the competition in the market. As I said, that the anti-monopoly is one of the very important functions that government should play. So in this regard, I think that uh, for a better and predictable regulation, the related stakeholders may know what they can do, where they can head for. That is a really important thing because the consumers are, you know, in different levels or different interest fields or directions on the games. Maybe if they are only provided with a certain few of the games, they, they, they cannot just enjoy the games. So I think that is very important to provide different types of the games. And it's uh, also, as you mentioned, because China has uh, such a large population and uh, well-developed well the 5G connections for the mobile connections, it's uh, really potential to attract so many stakeholders from all around, all around the world. So they will come here. Mm. Uh, media reports sometimes would tend to, you know, underline the restrictive parts of these proposals, but there are also contents in this uh, in those proposals which are aimed at enhancing further development or further growth. For instance, uh, there is the speeding up of the process for the regulators to approve a new type of game. So, what do you make of these um, contents on the? You know, on the uh, enhancing development um, aspect, especially when we talk about uh, their short-term uh, impact versus the versus the long-term impact. Yeah, I have to I have to admit that China is very cultured in the cultural things. Like for the games, it's one of the cultural products that are having many impact on the people's mind. So we are trying to make it more, you know, uh, well. Developed and uh, as you mentioned, that this measurement, this adjustment is a kind of uh, what we call it uh, facilitation, because uh, the the online games and also some other games sectors have a very high, I mean the the threshold for the newcomers. So if we are trying to provide a better and more facilitate. Terms in the newcomers. I think it will be a, a very important way to attract so many newcomers. Actually, uh, I think that for the personal experiences, although I don't have many experiences on playing the the video games or online games, but I have many friends who are mm. very curious about that, and uh, I don't think that is uh, you know they they can enjoy that for the whole days. So we are providing more choices. Maybe some of the interest maybe can be transferred to others. We are not so addictive to the certain games, and they also providing us with a better and a healthy life. In my understanding. Hmm. So the last question before we let you go briefly: 
Do you think、uh, online gaming has any role to play in terms of,、uh, say, bolstering a country's innovation and overall competitiveness?、Um, I mean, that depends on the people. If they are only enjoy this kind of、uh, handling in that game, maybe it's not that good. But、uh, actually, we know that in even in some kind of international competition, there are game competition. The people are really able to control their their fingers and their minds to coordinate with others with a team. So I I would say that、uh, from these games, it will inspire us in certain angles and dimensions. And the people may be able to try to think something different from the reality. And that is the possibilities for the innovation in this regard. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with my colleague Ding Heng. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. This week, we bring you our year-end review series in which we reflect on the defining moments that shaped the global landscape in 2023. It's been a bumpy year for China-U.S. relations. Ties deteriorated after the formation of the House Select Committee on China in January and the so-called balloon incident in February. The Biden administration added fuel to the fire by intensifying the chip war against China, imposing new restrictions on advanced computer chips. However, there is a silver lining to the cloud. We have witnessed in recent months a series of high-level exchanges, culminating in the Xi-Biden meeting in San Francisco in November. Last week, the two sides resumed high-level military contacts that has been suspended since Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan in August of last year. What can we learn from the ups and downs in China-U.S. ties throughout the year, and what are the future dynamics for bilateral relations? We are joined by Dr. Zhao Hai, director of the International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network, senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. And、uh, Dr. Zhao, let me start with you, and、uh, let's talk about the latest development first. How significant is the resumption of high-level military contact between the two countries? Well, thank you for having me.、Uh, I think it's very significant. It's very important for both sides to resume military-to-military contact,、uh, because as we know, that contact was cut off after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Uh, and that relationship has、uh, been endangered、uh, by the U.S. unilateral actions. So now, after the San Francisco summit, finally we resume the military-to-military contact, and that is good for、uh, not only bilateral but regional and global security and military safety.、Um, and also, as we know, recent in recent years,、uh, the U.S. has deployed more military assets around China. And also, there's pro-independence forces in Taiwan that are making a lot of uh, challenging um, situation across the Taiwan Strait. Also, in the South China Sea, things are not not、uh, peaceful.、Uh, there's still、uh, turbulence around. So, I think overall,、uh, 
for both a regional and global security, both militaries need to talk with each other and trying to find ways to manage this very complex bilateral relationship. Previously, we used diplomatic and other channels to communicate, but that's not enough because military-to-military contact is a very special and professional uh, dialogue that two sides need to have. So uh, ultimately, I think at this point, two sides resuming contact and start to talk about these important issues are very significant. And after the first uh, contact, first phone call, uh, we uh, have the readouts, and uh, it, it looks like both sides have been talking about uh, uh, regional issues uh, across Taiwan Strait in South China Sea and also the um, Korean Peninsula and other uh, conflicts around the globe like uh, Ukraine uh, and uh, Palestinian uh, Gaza issue. So I think moving forward, uh, there will be more contacts by both sides, uh, and this will be um, a good sign that uh, both sides will, will have a responsible uh, relationship on mill-to-mill relations. Okay, so Harvey, in your opinion, um, particularly if we consider the situation in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea, how will communications between the two countries' militaries help lower the risk of miscalculation and unexpected conflicts? I think it's uh, very, very important. And I think that uh, the significance of this agreement can't be overstated. Uh, because, for example, if you go back to the balloon incident, both sides were essentially flying blind and events could have spiraled out of control. Maybe mushroomed is a better choice of words because mushroom clouds could have resulted from simple misunderstandings that could have been avoided with instant communication uh, channels. And let's face it also that talking is way better than fighting. And in the absence of communication, anything could have happened as each side could have easily assumed the worst of the actions and intentions of the other. And they could have acted on these uh, worst case scenarios that might not in fact have been true. So if you take uh, the situation with the Taiwan Strait, also uh, if you look at the South China Sea, um, these are both areas where uh, there needs to be constant communication and instant communication between both sides to avoid any misunderstandings and to be able to address situations before they become not only problems but are irreversible. So uh, we have to uh, we have to have this kind of uh, communication. And now that uh, as a result of the San Francisco summit that they've taken place and are going to seemingly be on an ongoing basis, I think we can all breathe a sign of relief uh, that this has happened. We we can't go back to the situation that existed earlier this year or after Nancy Pelosi's uh, uh, visit. Uh, uncalled for visit to, to, to Taiwan. Yeah, and, and Harvey, since you mentioned the San Francisco meeting, actually it was seen as an important attempt to stabilize U.S.-China relations after several years of rising tensions. So what do you make of the outcome of this meeting and its impact on bilateral ties? 
I think the meeting was very important because uh, the situation for most of the years since the balloon incident was very, very bad and was, was in fact spiraling downward. And there was no assurance that this meeting was going to happen in San Francisco. But I think both sides uh, recognized that uh, there had to be a meeting and also to reverse the situation and to put it on a more upward trajectory. And I think that's what's happened. I think that uh, the meeting uh, was uh, established a higher level of trust. And I also think the temperature of the bilateral relations was significantly uh, reduced. Um, and I think that there was a new spirit of San Francisco that resulted and reversed the, the downward relations. So if you want to look at some specifics, 20 common understandings in political, diplomatic, cultural people-to-people -people exchanges, uh, global governance, uh, as well as military security and other fields were, were done. Um, and the meeting, I think, was seen by all side, sides as businesslike and positive in outcome. So military-to-military -military relations uh, is one. Uh, cooperation on the scourge of illicit drug use, especially fentanyl, that's resulted in hundreds of thousands of U.S. deaths has resumed, uh, and China has cooperated significantly before bilateral relations tanked. Uh, China is the largest source of the ingredients used to make this powerful, lethal drug. And I think many people hope that many lives are going to be saved as a result of this cooperation. Um, and there were other things. Cooperation on addressing the environmental issue prior to COP28 was discussed, and these discussions are going to be uh, ongoing. It was also a golden opportunity to exchange views on regional and uh, global challenges that included things we've already discussed, like uh, Taiwan, but also Korean Peninsula, South and East China Seas, and the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. The, the two leaders affirmed the need to address the challenges of AI, as well as to manage bilateral competition responsibly and avoid conflict. And they agreed to resume people-to-people -people exchanges, including in tourism. That was another positive outcome. And there are working groups established to follow up on these issues and to make uh, progress on them. And I, I think that that's definitely those are all definitely very good signs. During the San Francisco meeting, President Xi stated that China had no plans to replace the U.S. and that the U.S. should not intend to suppress or contain China. He also noted that planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed. Uh, but do you believe that um, the fear of China surpassing or re replacing the U.S. is a central factor in the tensions between the two countries? Um, I think that um, the um, president, uh, both uh, both presidents uh, were very forthcoming. And uh, I think it's important to note that President Biden stated that while the U.S. and China were, in fact, competitors, he said that the world expects both countries to manage competition responsibly and to prevent it from veering into conflict or confrontation or even a new uh, Cold War that some people feel has in fact already started. Um, but that said, there's definitely a fear in the U.S. of China surpassing it economically and politically. And Biden was pandering actually to this fear when he said in undiplomatic things about 
not only President Xi, but the Chinese political model in the press conference that followed the uh, summit. So I think that that's a these there are still uh, some uh, problems that exist here that have to be addressed, and I think that steps were taken. But I do believe that there's going to be continual tension, uh, especially with the American uh, election coming up uh, next year. And Dr. Zhao,、uh, the Biden administration has taken a series of action to limit Chinese access to advanced technology in in what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has called a small yard high fence strategy. How how do you perceive this strategy? I think uh, the um, Washington D.C. has made a complete plan of how to manage this、uh, bilateral relationship, including economic relationship. And the two major components,、uh, three major components. One is to invest in itself. So we've seen、um, that they pass major laws to invest in its own semiconductor industries,、uh, uh, infrastructure, and green technology、uh, and domestic production of new energy. Uh, and then the second component is the risking, meaning that they will rearrange supply chains around the globe, and reducing、uh, China's proportion to it and diversify its global supply chain. And the third part is about what you said,、uh, small yard high fence, which is try to suppress China's development of uh, uh, high technology, uh, particularly the technology that involves,、um, you know, AI technology,、uh, semiconductors, and also、uh, quantum computing. And those areas, the U.S. believe, is the area that control the commanding heights of the future,、uh, which means that whoever control those major areas will have the fundamental technology、uh, that can secure、uh, its military superiority in in the long run. And、uh, China is the only country in the world that, in all these areas, are catching up really、uh, fairly fast.、Uh, so that's why the U.S. is worried about that and tries to use administrative. Uh, a power to try to curb China's development. I think、uh, there are many arguments、um, in the United States and around the world, including China, about the pros cons、uh, of these kind of policies for China. And I think、uh, the people in the industry, and particularly in the semiconductor industry, believe that those policies will not work in the long run because this is only trying to、uh, trip China. But not really helping American business, and particularly not helping American business who have large proportion of operational、uh, benefit in China. And recently,、uh, just a couple of days ago, we've seen that、um, uh, a major U.S. Uh, uh, semiconductor producer have reached agreement with、uh, a Chinese company that they no longer sue each other but、uh, restart business.、Uh, that shows how、uh, on the American side that they don't want to be. Uh, limited by this kind of policy, and ultimately, I think cooperation will make two sides、uh, all stronger. But at this point, I think even though、um, both the、uh, Commerce Department、uh, Ministry in China and, and Commerce Department in the United States having a top established export control uh, mechanism uh, and restart dialogue, I don't think the U.S. right now have the appetite of reducing this kind of uh, 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 restriction of exporting. Uh, Semiconductor-related technology uh, to China.、Uh, I think in the future, what needs to be clarified is how high the fence is and how big the fence is, and exactly what kind of technology is dual-use technology that is related to the military.、Uh, in fact, a, a lot of those technologies are civilian-use technologies that has nothing to do with the military. That's China's perspective.、Mm-hmm. So I think uh, hopefully uh, in the coming days, both sides will start having extensive dialogue. 
on the future of the technology, particularly related to uh, artificial intelligence. Yes, and, and Dr. Zhao, actually we know that um, scientific collaboration between the U.S. and China came under intense scrutiny even during the Trump administration when uh, the U.S. Just, Justice Department launched the China Initiative to investigate uh, possible Chinese intellectual property theft and espionage. And that, of course, was abandoned by the Biden administration. So how would you uh, compare the Biden administration's approach with that of his predecessor in handling these issues. Uh, do you think Biden is trying to find a middle ground or do you feel it's essentially a continuation of Trump's policies? Well, I, I think the Biden administration is trying to find, yes, like you said, a middle ground, which means that on the one hand, they wanted to continue to, to stop or suppress China's uh, innovation and development of technology and trying to stop China from catching up uh, as a peer of U.S. Uh, technological um, superiority. But on the other hand, they do not want hurt American business because they know very well that after uh, this age of globalization, uh, both on, in terms of supply chains and also on R&D and in many other areas, uh, China and the United States are deeply uh, coupled with each other. And, ben- and that relationship is actually mutually beneficial. So if you try to cut that tie... Uh, the U.S. company will suffer from losing uh, revenues from China, a huge portion of revenues from China, and losing the ability to invest in research and development. And for China, of course, it's losing uh, access to more advanced technology uh, from the U.S. side. And so that, in recent, uh, most recent policy from the United States, they're trying to stop um, venture capital uh, from the United States to China to invest in certain development of certain technologies. But the problem is, in the long run, um, if uh, for both Trump administration and Biden administration, if they believe that uh, China is only because China's connection with the United States that's uh, uh, you know, generating innovation, that they are wrong because there's a very strong indigenous market-driven technological innovation within China without uh, you know, dependency on the United States. So I think... Um, you know, cutting off, just trying to unilaterally cutting off uh, access to capital, to knowledge, and to market of the United States is not uh, enough and will be a lose-lose case. Mm-hmm. So I think um, Biden administration in the future needs to rethink the whole scheme of small yard high fence. And uh, I, I think in the following years, uh, the U.S. companies will continue to push the U.S. government changing its policy towards China. Okay. Um, Harvey, as we know that over the past several decades, economic ties have been considered the bedrock of China-U.S. relations with the belief that mutual benefits of trade contribute to stability and prevent conflicts. Uh, But considering the current geopolitical climate, can we still rely on economic ties to sustain the foundation of China-U.S. relations? I think Dr. Zhao's already discussed part of this uh, question, but to me, there's no way that globalization is going to be significantly reduced. China's the second largest economy when you measure it nominally, but it's actually first when measured by the more accurate purchasing power parity dimension. So China will, and by and large, continue to be the world's factory of the highest level goods, using the most efficient and advanced technologies. Of course, 
there will be some to risking to diversify sources and to stockpile components. But if you look at the big picture, decoupling can't and won't happen. And there's another reason, too, with initiatives such as Made in China 2025 and China's AI 2030 initiative and its global leadership in patents and Nobel Prize quality papers, China isn't exactly resting on its laurels, but continuing to upgrade. So I think if you put all these factors uh, together, uh, you're going to see that there will be a mutual cooperation and the trends that Dr. Joe described in terms of pressure from, uh, let's say, American industry to uh, cooperate with China. So I am actually quite positive about this uh, getting better. That is, unless Donald Trump or somebody like him gets uh, elected in the next election. Okay, so Dr. Zhao, how might the upcoming U.S. presidential election and the potential change in administration potentially impact the trajectory of China-U.S. relations, in your opinion? Well, I think, I think it will have a uh, short-term disruption of the current trend of uh, China-U.S. relations. Because after uh, the summit in San Francisco, I think both uh, China and U.S. have agreed uh, on a, a medium-term plan to how to stabilize the bilateral relationship the mechanisms have established, and like uh, Dr. Harvey has uh, pointed out, that uh, many of those mechanisms will have a major uh, positive effect on the bilateral economic, political, security relationship. However, if that's been disrupted by the next election uh, of the United States, and then we will suffer, I think, from a short-term, uh, very rapid and uh, very disruptive policy shift in the United States. So we have to think about how to uh, recalibrate the, the relationship with the United States on trade, on technology, on a variety of issue, security issues. Um, so, Dr. Harvey, would you like to uh, share your opinion on the future trajectory of China-U.S. relations, particularly if we consider the upcoming U.S. presidential election and uh, a potential change in administration? Uh Yes, I'll be happy to. I think the upcoming election uh, can profoundly uh, impact the trajectory of our relations. Uh, the elections are on November 6th. That's only 316 days from now. So in polling, Biden's ratings are at a low point and Trump's polling beats not only Biden's, but all the other Trump Republican wannabe competitors. And they couple that with the fact that polls from Gallup, Pew, other respected polling organizations show Americans' views on China being the most negative that they've been for decades. So I expect U.S. elections from the small villages up to the White House to be about who can trash China the most. It won't be pretty and uh, I think can adversely affect bilateral relations just as they've started to get better. So about that, I'm not uh, optimistic. And uh, as I said before about Trump, uh, he's doing very well, despite the fact he's facing 91 state and federal felony count indictments for actions he took during and after his presidency. It seems with each added charge that he's raised millions of dollars more for his campaign and his ratings stay rock solid. Uh, 
So I think this is very, very worrisome. So a lot is going to depend on the outcome um, of the election. And I think uh, uh, since it's uh, Christmas and some people are in prayer mode, we better pray that Donald Trump is not elected president again, because I think that he'll double down on his anti-China rhetoric. If uh, if Biden or a Democrat is um, elected the next time, I think we can expect a somewhat more balanced policy. But I think the next uh, uh, 11 months or so are going to be fraught uh, times for the bilateral relations during these various campaigns. Okay. Uh, well, Dr. Zhao, if we look at the ups and downs in China-U.S. ties over the past year, what lessons do you think could be learned and, and what do you think are the biggest challenges ahead for bilateral ties? Well, I think uh, two things. But first of all, I think this, uh, we ha- have to look at the long-term relationship and it's structural. So even though, like I said just now, we face short-term turbulence, but I believe with the uh, continued growth of China and with the uh, U.S. politics like this, uh, there will be a, um, a final point where two countries find a new equilibrium or new framework that could uh, put them together in a peaceful coexistence. Uh, that, that's number one. And number two, looking back in the past year, I think is very, the very important lesson that we learned is that at any point we need the communication channels open and we need to learn how to respect each other and now to provoke uh, each other. And finally, I think uh, people-to-people exchanges are extremely important. And without people-to-people friendly to each other and having multiple ties uh, connecting both countries, preventing those extreme politicians from wrecking the relationship, it's very difficult to stabilize the relationship. So in the future, I think particularly in the near future, the next next year, a major task is to reestablish people-to-people relationship on local level between young people, just just like President Xi has advocated. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Harvey, just now you mentioned that a large proportion of Americans hold negative views uh, on China. So how do you think uh, we can improve such kind of uh, people-to-people relationship? Uh, I think that they're critical. So the the question is, is how? And I believe that uh, part of this comes uh, in travel and tourism. Part of it comes from increasing the number of uh, Chinese students in America and the number of uh, American students in China. I mean, even that issue has gotten politicized, demonized and and so on. So we have to uh, take steps. And um, I can tell you that. A uh, half century ago, the first time I went to Europe from America, I participated in a program in Holland when I was a tourist called Get in Touch with the Dutch. And I was introduced to a, a Dutch family. Uh, and uh, I remember this so many, so many years later. I think we have to find uh, new ways to meet each other. When Americans go to someplace in China, whether it's in Beijing or a small village, they don't usually get to talk to the people. And we need, especially with all the mass communications and high tech we have uh, these days, ways to establish contact so people can meet more than the concierge at their hotel or a waiter in a restaurant. I think there's so much that can be done. And I think it's urgent that we start to do it now. 
Yeah, thank you, Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. And thank you, Dr. Zhao Hai, director of international political studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.